Georgia. Oh my God, you rabbit. Welcome to another episode of Real Talk with Rich and John, episode number seven. I cannot believe it. It's seven episodes already. Seems like we just started. We've not reviewed. We talked about and discussed the impact that the movies that we grew up with had on us. And I'm having the best time at this. My name is Rich Sear. And, <laughs> and, I, and I'm John Bristol. And I'm having a blast with this too. Every, every one we do is a different thing, which is cool and a lot of fun. So I'm just glad we're doing more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a special episode because yes, it is. we have a guest, a very special guest going to be on our show. And um, she was in a couple couple on well-known movies i guess and she's well she's she's not on tonight this is the precursor no, everybody. i know she's she on our next episode another episode of this but so record we're recording this first and um two of the movies that she was in out of maybe close to 200 movies one is the howling the other one is cujo it's all about d wallace this is d, d wallace night here on real talk with rich and jen d wallace yeah two two for one tonight which is good uh, one thing I like when we normally when we do multiple movies, we're doing a uh, a series, except for the, um, the last episode. But uh, so this time we're just kind of hitting two different movies, but the the theme is the actress, which is really cool. Yes, and I'm yes. sure we'll end up talking about some of our other films too. But Joe and The Howling, which I was one of my favorite werewolf movies ever made, so I'm excited about this. Yeah, well, let's start with that then, because right. 1981 was a good year for werewolf movies. Yes, we Wolfen, American Werewolf. Yeah, Wolfen. American Werewolf in London, Wolfen, and The Howling. Yeah. And um, I liked Wolfen, but my two favorite for that year, and probably my two favorite of all the werewolf movies, are The Howling and American Werewolf in London. And the, there's, it's funny the correlation between that, because we'll start right now with Rob Boutin did the special yeah. effects in The Howling. He did. Rick Baker started in that movie. And then left to do American Werewolf. <laughs> yes. But then he left. But Rick Baker, and we talked about this in our episode on The Thing. Rick Baker and Rob Bottin are friends, and they work together a lot. So he was, you know, he consulted him, and they helped out a lot. But, yeah, Rob Bottin, this was probably his first, it was his first big start. I mean, like, The Thing thing came out a year later, or two yeah. years later. So, but you could tell he's still getting his, I mean, the special effects are great. And, and they had a small budget on that movie too. How long was well, yeah. What, like eight million or something? You pay in a second. Um, the budget was one point five million. One point five million. And the one point five. That was it. Yes, that's it. So Cujo and, must have been eight million. Maybe that's what I was thinking of. But wow, one Cujo is eight million. Yes. So that's with nothing that, for a movie, even though. And there's scenes in there. You know, like the 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 commercials about the cereal and the howling. No, that's, that's right. It's Cujo. Sorry. Um, so I watched both movies around the same time. Yeah. There was, I was, I was um, listening to an interview with Dee Wallace, and she was saying that Joe Dante had to put a lot of his own money into this because the studio said, no, we're not going to pay for this. We're not going to pay for that. Oh, no. And the special effect, what he did was he promised the studio, Joe Dante promised the studio that they would do a transformation scene with no cutaways. And Rob Boutin loved it. But what happened was- That was really was, good. What happened was that they didn't have enough money for it. He only had enough money for uh, the um, to make effects for the head and hands. So then what he did is he went to embassy to ask for more money, and they filmed the sequence three months later. Aha. We because the movie, we showed you what it's like. Give us some more money to make it better. Basically, yeah. Yeah. That does happen a lot, which is good. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah Robert Picardo killed it, you know, in that transformation. I know it was mostly effects, but 
fact that he played that character that was transforming and he did such a good job. And I didn't know that was Robert Ricardo as like a kid, you know? Oh, I know. I, I know the actor was, I'd seen his face in a million things, but you don't really see his face at all because he's almost always in some sort of prosthetic, you know, even after yeah. the acid thrown at him and half his face is melted, which is an amazing effect too. He's, um, you don't recognize him. You don't recognize him. He's not the, the, the holographic doctor from Star Trek or yeah. the, the, the guy from Inner Space, a million other movies he's done, you know, but he's... Um, this movie you know, alone had so many classic actors. I mean, first of all, you yeah, John Carradine, who's been yep. in at least a thousand movies. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. You look <laughs> at his I, um, IMDb. I mean, the li- it's probably three pages long. He, the guy's been in everything. And from what I heard, he was really sick in the filming of this movie. And yeah. like, he pulled it. And he wasn't. He, he was one of these classics. The you know the the wacko that everybody thinks is crazy, but he's the only one that knows everything. Which is essentially what he was in this, in a way, too. You know. Yeah, yeah, yes. So um, then they had like. Um, Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy. I would just say Mr. Kevin McCarthy. Yep. And Dick Dick Miller. Patrick Minnie. Dick Miller. Um, Who else? Christopher Stone, obviously. That's uh, Dee Walls' husband. Yeah. Uh, That was her fiance at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then, not sure if you know this, but uh, he got the movie because of her. Did you hear the story? No, no. All right. Here's what happened. He, um, they were looking for somebody to be her husband. And she was engaged to uh, Chris Stone at the time. And she goes, I know this actor, Chris, his last name. It starts with an S, Chris. I think it might be Chris Stone. And they're like, all right, let me check it out. So a couple days later, the phone rings at Chris's house. Dee picks it up. I'm like, oh, sorry, we must have uh, dialed the wrong number. I'm looking for Chris. He got the part. Uh, you didn't make a mistake. We're engaged. <laughs> and you're like, ha-ha. So she said, she goes, he got the part on his own, but. But she helped with a little nudge to get him the. Get, in the, get his foot in the door. He still thought audition, I'm sure, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because they, he, he got the part without even realizing, because she said she was worried that if um, she said, oh, yeah, well, my fiance, they would have been like, yeah, that's okay. Sorry mm-hmm. about that. They wouldn't have even Nepotism or whatever the word is, yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, that's had, great, though. Yep. And then, of course, again, he played in Cujo with her. Yep. And that played her husband in that one that she was cheating on with the other guy. And in this one, in Howling, sure, she's her husband, but she's cheating on her with the, with the werewolf lady, you know, like, which is fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's fun. I like what they did with that because they really didn't have a lot enough. They, they wanted to do the uh, transformation scene, speaking of the werewolf yeah. lady. And they did it with animation. With a slight bit of animation just in the wide shot. Yep. They, there was, uh, you know, and you know, it's, it's like, it doesn't take me out of the scene like, as a filmmaker and as a film viewer. That kind of thing was done a lot in the past. Little bits of animation just to make an effect work. And yeah, the first even in Tim Burton's first Batman, going all the way to '89, there's a scene where Batman's actually animated. You know, people don't catch it. You know, because it's it's done from the distance. It's a shadowy scene, and you don't even realize it's animation. And, uh, you know, it just makes it that much weirder. That movie's weird as it is, and that just makes it takes it to that next level of like fantasy weird. Yeah. That movie is definitely a weird movie. The Howling is definitely a weird movie. That's why probably why I like I like it so much. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's funny because they, what they wanted to do was uh, they had somebody set to do the movie, and it was Jack Conrad. Yeah. He optioned the rights for it, and he wrote a screenplay. He was ready to direct it. Studio saw it and said, "No, we don't yep. like any of this at all." So that's when they got Joe Dante, who was friends with Roger Corman, and also John Sales, who wrote the 
who wrote it and went a little more uh, tongue in cheek with it, a little more humorous than the book, which I like actually. I mean, sometimes sometimes horror movies can take themselves too seriously. Yeah. You know, and I've read the book and it takes itself very seriously, almost to the point where it's not scary anymore. It's just too, it's dramatic, which is good because horror has drama, but it's almost like a drama, you know, like melodrama. So like, I think the movie was just a better take on, on the same story. You know, I can't say that it's better than the book because it's different, but it's, I prefer the story of the movie better, the way they handled things. What they were saying was that the only thing that they kept from the book was that it's werewolves in modern times. Other than that- Pretty much, I mean, that's a great way to look at it. Yeah, you know, some of the character names, things like that, uh, but it's, it's very different, yeah. Well- I'm too happy about it. <laughs> what's interesting about the character names is that all the main characters, or, no, sorry, many characters were named after horror film directors who directed other films that featured werewolves. Mm-hmm. So you had George Wagner who directed The Wolfman, you had R. William Neal who directed Frankenstein meets Wolfman, you had Terrence Fisher, The Curse of the Werewolf, Freddie Francis, Legend of the Werewolf, Earl Kent, House of Dracula, which co-stars John Carradine, who plays Kent in The Howling. So, I mean, there's, yep. like, there's so many in-jokes in this movie. That's <laughs> what I love about it. I mean, unless you're a, like a, a real movie geek, it's going to go. But the thing is, what's so great about that is there's so many in-jokes and so many cameos. And even if you don't know these people, you, the movie just goes along. You, so yeah, you, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not distracting. No, especially, well, I mean, I mean, if you look back when it came out, too, you probably didn't really think much of, you know, that the fact that it was, um, just drew a blank on the guy, uh, not Dick Miller, but. Um, he played in the movie, Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy, yeah. Uh, that you don't think much about it because he was just a well-known character actor. And Dick Miller, you know, he was in things, too. So, you know, as these guys got a little older, they became legendary for what they were doing. But at this point, they were right on the cusp of that. So there's actors in the movie to a lot of people. Yeah, Dick Miller has one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. What's that? At the end, when he's watching the newscast, he's just—I think he just goes, "Oh shit!" Or <laughs> just one of my favorite lines. I can't even think of what the line is, but it's the impetus of what he's saying is like what I, the, his reaction to seeing the werewolf change on TV is like, "Yeah, here we go," you know. Or how like, well, the little like, kids are like, "Mommy, the, we just watched the news lady turn into a werewolf." I, I love that. I have to say, D makes the cutest werewolf I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, they shouldn't really like a little puppy. Then she would, yeah. maybe she wasn't fully transformed, is what I'm guessing. They before they shot. Nope. Here's I, I read why they did that because they wanted to distinguish her from the evil werewolves, so they made gave her a nicer and they called it the okay. peekiness look. So it was okay. like a peekiness. So they wanted her to they wanted to show like she's one of the good ones and she's not an evil werewolf. Okay, but that scene was actually I mean, let me get the the. Um, information on that it was shot in close-ups because what happened was they um they didn't have a set it was that scene was shot a day before the movie was to be printed oh wow went back and as you see as she's turning into a werewolf it's all close-ups because there was no set the wide angles were shot earlier that's crazy holy cow i didn't know that they wanted to go back and uh show the transformation and i said the movie for 1.5 million dollars that joe Dante got the most out of his money Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. I heard it was like only a, a 28 day shoot or something too. It was very yeah, 28 days for principal. And that included the reshoots. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's like, when you think about that, that's like three weeks of shooting and then a week of reshoots. If that, that's crazy. Like and it made $17.9 million. So I'd call that a success. Yeah. Yes. Well, they yes. said, let's, let's see where it is. There was um, the highest. No. 
sorry, I have my notes about like what I think it was the fourth gross. No, I was sorry. There's that's the other movie. We'll talk about that later. Cujo, fourth highest grossing in um with the Twilight Zone, Psycho 2, and Jaws 3D. Jaws 3D. Oh, well, speaking of Jaws 3, this is, I love this fact. um, Joe Dante was hired. He was taken off the script he was working on. It was called Jaws 3, People Zero. He was working on that, and they said, yeah, that was the best. Spielberg was all about it. He was all about that. He wanted a comedy. He thought that would be really funny to make the third Jaws movie a comedy and just take away, you know, get it away from what they were doing. And the studio was just like, people aren't going to understand it. <laughs> They're not going to get the <laughs> I think probably around that time, that's when he was trying, his first foray into comedy was the movie 1941, and he was probably trying. That, to was, a few, that was a few years before. This was 80, what, Jaws 3 came out, 81? Oh, you're right, 1980. So say it was. So this was the same year Raised Lost Art came out. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, but so you, George Lucas put a lot of comedy into that, so he was yeah. probably. I just think a lot of people missed just, I just think the studio just want to make another Jaws movie. They didn't want to make a Jaws parody movie and call it Jaws. You know? Well, you know, um, the director, sort of the writer was, he was writing another script at the same time. The movie Alligator. I don't know if you ever saw yep. that. Oh, yeah. I love that. I remember seeing that at the drive-in. We went to drive and they gave us a small <laughs> alligator. But they said that what they would do is they'd be knocking on the door and he'd say, who is it? And whoever producer was, you hear like the typewriter, the paper taken out and then put the other paper. He was writing two scripts at the same time. He was writing oh. Alligator and The Howling at the same time. Howling. That's crazy. You know, like... That's good though. Like that he could pull that off. Um, what 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 was your like um, like when did you first see the howling? Like what? How did it affect you? What were you thinking? It was. I loved it, and I was at, actually I was a little bit older. I was nineteen. I want to say I didn't see it in the movies. I don't think I saw it in the theaters. No. It was I was eighty one. I was old enough. I, I was like eleven years old. But I remember I maybe saw it in HBO. So probably like say eighty three. I think. Yeah, that's when I saw it. Yeah. But I remember laughing, especially that part where he goes, I want to give you a piece of my mind. Like, I, yes. I, I, always, I always, and you know what's funny? That he said as a joke. Like, it was, they were, and he was, and Joe Dunn said, Whoa, keep that. He goes, I'm just kidding. He goes, no, no, I love that. Because that sense of humor, that weird sense of humor that was through the whole movie, that weird, like, you know, like I saw it around the same time uh, when it was like an HBO or Showtime when it first hit like cable. And it was like this one of those other horror movies in my house where it was like, oh, you, you shouldn't watch this, you can't. My parents were like, no, no, it's R, we're not gonna let you watch it because I would have been eight in, in 83. Yeah. No, no, you can't watch it, you can't watch it. I think they were probably more worried about the nudity than they were about the, the horror element of it because I had already seen plenty of stuff. And uh, we're like, finally like, okay, you can watch it. And uh, the Picardo character, Quist, like creeped me out. Like, what did, what did? Quist? Oh, yeah, yeah. He just creeped me out. Like I was just like, ooh, even when he when he was the half werewolf, you know, he was stuck in the and did the brain thing. I was laughing, but grossed out and like the melted face. And yeah. Everything like, but the other werewolf stuff didn't scare me really at all. The action was like intense, but I wasn't scared of werewolves. I mean, at eight years old, I was smart enough to know there are no such thing as werewolves. Or yeah, <laughs> but, like, but um, like you know, I wasn't worried that werewolves were to come to my bedroom at night. You know, things like that. But um, I loved it. I remember watching it thinking, like, this is the coolest thing. I hadn't seen American Werewolf in London yet either. So I saw that. You know what's funny? So I remember seeing that one in the theater. Yeah. That one, I saw it after year. that. Yeah. yeah. And then I found out they were the same year, and I was just blown away. These two awesome 
werewolf movies. And I got really into werewolf movies for a while after that. Like, I remember, like, we'd write, like, The Wolf Man. And yes. if anything with a werewolf I could find at the video store, I was like, I want to watch. I remember when Teen Wolf came out, I was so excited to have another wolf movie that was new. And I knew it wasn't going to be scary. I still love Teen Wolf, man. That movie's fun, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I think I love yeah. it. But, you know, but, uh, yeah, so I remember that was my, my experience, though, was, like, I'm, I was, like, uncomfortable because some of the weird stuff and at that age I didn't get some of the humor so I remember like not seeing again for a good 10 years like I missed the just you know to watch it again and then seeing it again 18 19 years old maybe even 20 renting it I don't want to rent that or you know because I know I didn't see it on tv again I remember renting yeah. a girlfriend or something and like giggling through it because like it kind of makes fun of the whole new age thing that was going on in the 80s it's like something where it's like we go oops and we you know, we look at the sky together and hope for goodness and all that. Like, they're kind of making fun of that whole movement and all that. Well, I was going to say, you know why they did funny. that? John Sales was a psych major, psychology major. Oh, okay. And he put that in there intentionally, as you said, to make fun of him. Like, uh, Patrick McNeil yeah. was the, the head of that. And right. what happened was the smiley face was a big thing yep. at the time. Joe Dante hated that with a passion. It. So he made that the uh, serial killer's. A calling yeah. card and then he used it in gremlins again yes yeah on the fridge in gremlins yeah but it's funny you mentioned that your mother probably didn't want you to see the nude nudity you know who else hated the nudity nudity in that movie d wallace what happened was <laughs> they wanted to make the movie so realistic that like instead you know it's still like the hulk you know he turns into the hulk he still has his pants on and his shirt's a little bit ripped and yeah made it where everybody like the clothes are shreds and yeah naked. d walked into the at the colony, D walked in there and said, "There's no way I'm filming this scene like this." <laughs> have the werewolves have some clothes on. I mean, like I, I understand, like you're, you're the, as you turn to a werewolf, your clothes would tear off. You don't need to have like full frontal nudity to, to show that that's what's happening. The, the rest yeah. they could turn they could turn werewolf. Either clothes could be stuck on the where the wolf can tear the rest of the clothes off. You have a furry wolf. You know, as a filmmaker, I can see both sides of that. Like yeah. had they not had the, the, the woman uh, will be fully naked. And I mean, they might have got a PG on that movie at that point in the 80s, too. That could have pulled, it was pre-PG-13. Had there not been nudity and a couple less, per, that could have been a PG movie easily for 81. Oh, yeah. Because you, know? you look at a movie, I mean, the same year, Raised Lost Ark came out that year. And if you put a nude scene in Raised Lost Ark, it would have been R. Yeah. That movie is so gory in some scenes and so violent. You know, Indiana Jones is the hero, and he's outright murdering people. We forget that, you know? Like, I know. Not yeah. murdering in cold blood, but he's still killing people, and not necessarily always in the most heroic way. Sometimes he's just doing to get the hell out of there. Um, he's, he's a shady guy sometimes, and that, but that got a PG. And I always thought about the hollowing. It's like, you take the movie away and drop a couple of curse words, and that could have been a PG movie. Yeah. You know? And when PG-13 first happened, if they didn't show the full frontal, maybe just her chest, they might have a PG-13. Well, look how they did it. Look what Rick Baker and John Landis did in Amer American Werewolf in London. They, I mean... Uh, yeah, you never the see the nudity. But it's they all implied. In the, yeah, it's implied. And the way the camera angle is, that show, they show his full body, but then all of a sudden, the, you know, the hair starts materializing. And yeah. so they show his body very quickly, but only the backside. And then all of a sudden, the, then it goes a close-up of the, the face and the eyes. So that yeah, there's there's a way to do it, and I yeah, I think they probably were also probably tied to a studio that wanted nudity to get a certain audience and a certain thing. Yeah. Well, but it was still, I mean, I'm not complaining. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, especially with that female female werewolf. 
Right? I've never seen her. <laughs> that, and also that scene that this this, this like, scene that becomes animated and all that when they're changing the world. The werewolf transformation during that, like when their faces are changing, that's so well done. It's almost it's creepy. It's like really well done. No, like we said before with our thing episode, Rob Boutine, Rick Baker, and Tommy. Those three yes. are my all-time favorites, and they still are. So this movie is similar to From Dust Till Dawn for a reason. Um, from Dust Till Dawn, I'll tell you, in the first half of the movie, you have no idea it's a vampire picture. So what the Howling did, the, the studio said slasher pictures were very, very popular at that yeah. time. So they made it look like a slasher, slasher. picture. You really don't even know it's a, uh, even from the poster, you don't realize it's a werewolf movie until the last half of the movie. Yeah, I, I think that's awesome. I, I'm, and From Dust of Dawn is one of my all-time favorite horror movies, too. So yeah. that's a great comparison, because when you're watching it, I remember like when I was I rewatched it this past week, just because I hadn't seen it in a while, I wanted to watch it again, because we were going to do this, and I do like the film. But we, uh, I remember like thinking about, I didn't put The Dust of Dawn in together, but I was watching it, like, wow, it takes forever to actually see a werewolf, or even hear the term werewolf. And it was just like, this is this is cool. I like this. It's that slow build-up, but it's still a weird movie and bizarre. Yeah, if well, I become a, werewolves, you're like, ah, there it is, you know. Yeah. I think it's a great satire because they make fun of you know the self help movement, they make fun of so many different things, and it, it, there are so many in jokes in there. And the character actors, alone, we didn't even mention Slim Pickens plays a cop. We have yep. Kenneth Toby from the original thing from Another World, he plays another cop in the in the porn shop in the yep. very beginning. So, I mean, there's so know, that's cool. This movie has so well, much Joe is one of those. Yeah, Joe Dante is one of those directors who's always bringing the old guys back for things. You know, that's why Dick Miller was in so many of his movies in general. He yeah. always loves bringing those guys back, you know. Yeah. He said Dick Miller was in every one of his movies except for one, and only because his scene was cut out. But oh. yeah, he loves Dick so Miller. So he shot a scene, but he doesn't use it. Yeah, so every one of Joe Dante's, and Dick Miller is one of the best character actors. Oh, there's a great documentary about him. I think it's on Shudder. Yeah, it is. I didn't okay. see it yet, but I want to. It's, I, it's fun. I'm a it's huge really fan fun. of him. Yeah, he went to Hollywood to be a writer, which is kind of funny. He ended up becoming this actor that everyone knows his face and his name, you know, like in his voice. Well, I like how they made him the expert. Yeah. And, and that's what they, I was reading about this. They said most of the mythology of the Wolfman was created by a 1941 movie. And so they said most of the werewolf uh, movies, the folklore changed due to the budget constraints. So <laughs> they brought in for like sometimes I guess they created the full moon effect because of the it would have had taken several months for all the action to happen if it wasn't for the full moon. Oh. So they added that in there to Nick. make it so it can happen quicker. But I like how they just said Dick Miller saying this and saying that and then like, oh no, it doesn't have to be silver bull or this, you know, it doesn't have to be you know, whatever yeah. like, all the all the uh, lore that it had. And they were able to film around that lore and create a whole new werewolf picture. Which is great. And they still did the silver bullet thing, which I loved. So that was cool to see um, how quickly they would die when they got shot by the silver bullet, too. That was a different take because it's yeah. the movies you get shot, people just drop or they like react for like 30 seconds, you know? And then they added the was, burning, too. Yeah, but they just shot him and oh, oh, and he dropped that. It was that moment of shit, this isn't a bullet, this is a shit click, you know, just fall. And I thought that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they had a, a compose the composer. We I love talking about music. So we yeah, talk, I both talk about like how music is such an important part of the movie. This um, composer could not speak um, English at all. Yeah, 
they um, they brought in this director. His name was Paul Barbell, or so I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, but they both spoke Spanish. And then he went back, saw the movie, went back to Italy, and then mailed them the score. Right. Yeah, I was reading a little bit about that too. Um, Pino Don Don Donagio, I think is how it's pronounced. I'm looking at. Uh, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I apologize, Mr. Pino. Giselle, <laughs> first name. Yeah, and he he hadn't done like a like a lot of that kind of genre of film at that point either. He did that. He did Don't Look Now, which was a big deal, the Nicholas Rogue film, and he did Carrie. Um, okay. And him and Dante hooked up with Piranha. That's how they first worked together. Yeah, which I love that movie. Yeah, but he wasn't like, I then he did Blowout later, you know, and he, he did a lot more dramatic stuff as the years went on. And then towards the more modern end of his career, he did, wasn't doing a lot of U.S. films. He came back to the U.S. and did um, one of the Chucky films. I'm trying to remember which one. I'm going through his uh, filmography right now. Um, a few more U.S. films, but nothing that was like huge, huge. He did a ton of movies with over the years, including he did Snake Eyes later on too. Oh, with Nicolas Cage. Yeah, he did. Yeah, 2004, he did Seed of Chucky. Of all the Chucky movies, he did Seed of Chucky. Uh, I'm sure it was probably just one of those things that it was a great paycheck, or he just thought it was a funny ass movie. You know? Yeah. <laughs> History with horror, it might have been a combination of two. It's probably like, yeah, I'll do a Chucky movie. Why not? You know? Yeah. Why? You know what? Why say no? I mean, yeah, exactly. And he's a still job going. Is a job. I don't care. Yeah, and he's still going. He did um, uh, Palma's last film, Domino, last year. Oh, really? He did the score for that. So he's still going, which is great. I just think it's interesting, the fact that they brought him over. They brought another guy who spoke Spanish. They both went over. Yeah, it. just to... Movie, went back to Italy, then said, all right, mailed them the score. It's not like the, now where you could just, you know, email them with a computer. Email and send and like, files. Hey, here's my MP3. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, when we, uh, just from my own experience making films, when we did Josh and Todd, we didn't have a budget for a soundtrack, and we were like, what are we going to do? So we put a thing on Facebook, and it was like, hey, local bands, like Connecticut, Massachusetts, you want your song in a movie? I can't pay you, but we'll make a music video for the song if you want us to. And then bands reached out, like, heck, yeah, we'll do that. So it was great, you know, like, and they just emailed us the song, you know, immediately at MP3, where now, you know, like, or then, in 1981, you couldn't email an MP3 to somebody. You couldn't, you know. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, or even email a script. You had to like deliver it or mail it, you know. And with Josh and well, that's one thing I like with Josh is no one even cared the movies about. They just like, yeah, I want my whole song in a movie. Uh, see, that's how I would be too. I, I I don't say no to anything. Yeah. If they, if there's a job. It's like I I laughed when I was doing comedy for like two or three years. Somebody would say, well, I'm not going to do a show that I don't get paid at. Well, you're not going to get any shows. Yeah, you got to start somewhere, you know. Exactly. You're, you're three years is nothing on the timeline compared to like. You know what they say the 20 year overnight success that's what like, it is usually right yeah yeah, yeah um, so. but the for the getting back to composer he was looking for a theme for the howling and he got his inspiration from watching jaws okay which so makes sense, sense. that's slow burn up yeah. yeah so there's a lot of connections with steven spielberg in this movie yeah well joe dante and spielberg worked together too later on and they yeah with gremlins too, so gremlins and gremlins too yeah yeah, well, that's where um, he, was Dante he, involved, him, he wasn't involved in Twilight Zone. No, was that Dante didn't do anything in Twilight Zone, right? I don't no. think so. No, it was um, John no. Landis, Steven Spielberg, and uh, two other directors. Yeah, but it wasn't Joe Dante. Yeah, no, no, but they uh, um, so yeah, so the movie with huge success, great cast, and it was great characters, great special effects. I mean, all in all, there, I cannot really find any flaws with the movie. 
a thumbs up movie all the way, you know, going to yep. Cecil and Ebert, thumbs up all the way. Yep. Yeah, I, you know, I, it's funny. I don't know if you've ever bothered with any sequels. I wanted to talk about that. I, okay, never, <laughs> I never saw any of them. Okay. But it's just, I, what I did was I watched the trailers and I said. That's oh, all God. you'll ever need is to watch. Yeah. I, I remember seeing, probably around the same time I rented The Howling, like in the early mid 90s, when I was like between 18 and 20, I couldn't tell you exactly how old. I rented Howling 2 right after that because I didn't even know there were sequels. And I was like an HBO kid. I was a Showtime kid. It was the Showtime I probably saw it. And somehow I missed the howling too, you know, like just, I, don't, I probably saw the commercial for it. I was like, no. Yeah. yeah. I remember the commercials when it came out and it was the yeah. same thing. I said, nothing's going to top the first. First and off, the title is howling Two: your sister is a werewolf. Yes. <laughs> right there, you know, this is not going to be a good movie. Uh, it's, it's not even supposed to be a funny title. That's the worst part because the movie's played so straight. <laughs> so bad. It is so bad. Um, Sybil Danning was known for being like in lots of B movies. The big, the big draw was she's topless, so everyone wanted to see her boobs. I guess I don't know. Okay. Christopher Lee is in it. Oh yeah, I saw and, uh, the. And they, I'm sure it was just one of those things where it was like, oh, The Howling a sequel. Yeah, I'll do that. That sounds great. I'm Christopher Lee, and I'm a little older now. And there's even a scene where he's like in like an '80s nightclub with like the skinny sunglasses and all it's just like <laughs> oh my god like it is and it's such it's so like the first howling obviously a million dollars to make it not an expensive movie yep. movie you can look at it and know they spent more on it but it looks cheaper everything about it is just so cardboard so cheesy so so for first off right there that's your first sequel you know dumpster fire follow-ups you know like it's awful. It's bad. Christopher Lee actually apologized to Joe Dante on the set of Grand Two for the movie. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, yeah, he actually apologized to him. I'm sure Joe Dante was like, "I don't care." It was I would, you know, but still, like that was kind of nice. Of like, listen, I did that sequel. Yeah, I sullied your movie with this terrible sequel. It's that bad. And Christopher Lee can definitely be forgiven because he's done yeah. so many classic oh, yeah. Hammer movies. I mean, Hammer. I mean, he was. You know, he did some Tim Burton things. He was. Oh yeah. He was in Star Wars. Like, I, I, I'm, I like, oh, yeah. oh, exactly. you know, sometimes you do one for the paycheck. Someday we'll talk about Jaws and we'll talk about Michael Caine and we'll go over his story about that. But there is one more connection with Spielberg and this movie. Like we said, Joe Dante, he liked the movie. Yep. He got Joe Dante to do Gremlins. He also saw D. Wallace and said, D. Wallace. You know, he'd be the mother in E.T. Yeah, because which is of, totally against like everything she had really done at that point. Yeah. More dramatic, like, the the hot woman, not necessarily the sexy, like the attractive woman, the the powerful woman, the you know, like it's just, she never played the mom type before. Yeah, she was playing a soon to be single mom in ET, and that was a little like U turn for her. She was always nice and everything, but it was just yeah. And then she, she became playing. after that she became typecast as the mom in ET yeah. Ujo, and even she said she's I'm always. The mom always taking care of the kid yep. and always trying to save the kid. And we're going to talk about that in Cujo next. But, yeah, yep. so there's a lot of connections with Spielberg and The Howling, and it worked out pretty well for everybody. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the rest of The Howling sequels, by the way, just skip them all. None of them until, like, I think the fifth or sixth go back to the continuity. They're all just werewolf movies that use The Howling as a title to sell it. You saw them all? No. I read oh, okay. synopsis. Um, leading up to this, I went back and I was, I was like, maybe I'll watch a couple more of them. And uh, after I read like the, the IMDb synopsis of each film, and Reds are not part of the series. 
like none of them were tied in. They were just like like different. Where one, I think, I think one of them took place in Australia. Like they were using Howling because they had the brand name, the studio name to use it. So they just kept using. It. The author of the book came back and wrote one of them. Oh really? Wrote one of them, but it was I think it might have been the second one even. But it was just all awful. And I think they did like try to do like a reboot a few years ago. Like uh, and the, I was reading a little bit about that, but it was like a knockoff of a Twilight movie. They just used Howling as the title. Uh, so they had because they owned it. Yeah. So studios say say the same thing. They said we really could care less about the product. We want a name that's gonna sell. So people yeah. know the howling, it's, it has a cult following. So they get people in there like, oh wow, the howling, it's gotta be yeah. good. I'll so buy it because of the brand, and then you see it and you're like, this has nothing to do with the brand. Yeah, it's similar to a band. They said the it doesn't matter what the members are, owning the name is the most important part of a band. If you own Absolutely. the name of the band, so it's the same thing with a movie. The next one the howling. Oh, I mean Cujo. <laughs> Cujo, Stephen King. We're getting this is our first time we're talking about a Stephen King movie, right? Yes. Yeah. And the funny the funny thing is, is this is the one novel that he doesn't even, even remember writing. Remember because cocaine. Cocaine King got was involved. He probably banged this book out in 45 minutes, one draft, and sold a million copies because it was cocaine in the eighties and Stephen King was that good of a writer. You know? <laughs> and his version was a little bit darker, but all his books are dark. Um, in the book, the kid died from Dad dies. Yep. Yep. And so the what happened was they had him write the first script, and they said surprisingly, it's it was straight too far from the book. Oh wow! Like, right, well, probably because he was it wasn't high, and he wanted to do different things. <laughs> I know. I'm surprised because you know, like a lot of times writers get mad because oh, that's not my film or that's not my book. Like Stephen King with The Shining, he was so mad at Kubrick because Kubrick really changed everything around. Yeah. The only reason which we talked about in the previous episode was that that was more that was more autobiographical. So for that's Kubrick, why he yeah, was for for King, yeah. Like but with this one, but Douglas Adams is a good example of an author who loved it when the book was changed because he did uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. He wrote the radio play and he changed it, and then he wrote the BBC miniseries and he changed it, and then he wrote the feature film that came out in two thousand two or three or whatever it was it again and i remember like reading with him and somebody was like why do you keep changing things in your story and he goes because as you get older you have different ideas you can't rewrite the book but if you have the opportunity to rewrite it again whether it's a movie tv show a radio play he's like i want to put those new ideas into it i thought that was kind of cool he never strayed a, that far away yeah then you know that like if you read the book and you thought oh my god he's, he wrote the movie it's gonna be just like the book and you walk in it's not what the heck it's like that's what he wanted he wanted something different i get that yes. creator if I, I was that to too. go remake one of my movies now, I wouldn't do it word for word exactly the same. I, I have another, I have new ideas. I want to work into it. You know, I know, and I, I agree with you 100 percent because you, you, you can't. That's you're just going to be stale if you keep on rewriting the same thing over and yeah. over again. Yeah, and, and if Stephen King had the right to rewrite the chance to rewrite Cujo, why not change it up? You know, yeah. but but, but yeah. I guess the yeah the studio said nah, so they they got somebody else to come in and write it. I like how he got his idea was his motorcycle broke down or was need repair. So he went out to this place and had it fixed. It was out in the country and there was a big dog that came running up and they're like, this would make a what if? Yeah, what if? A lot of his novels are like that. That was, I mean, I've come up with ideas just because of what if, the situation of yeah. what if. And then you start writing the idea of what if and it could become something it could not. And Cujo, um, for me, I like the book better than the movie. Or Howling, I think I like the movie better than the book. Yeah. Um, I love Stephen King as a writer too, so I think oh, he's, he's probably one of my favorites. I cannot stand when people say, "Oh yeah, Mr. Horror." It's like he is 
hardly he to me he's like the Mark Twain of the twenty first century. Yeah, because he, he does so much more than horror, but he's known for horror. You know, like yeah, that, that was his bread and butter for sure. You know, but. I belonged to a writing group, and there was these people on there saying, you know, I, they were talking about his book on writing, and they're trying to quote something. From, but I'm not a fan. But I like it's like sh- I, I want to say You're shut a fan. up. You're a fan. You're just oh, it's Stephen King's below you. It's like it's, he's not cool. Yeah. Like he is one of the best writers. Anything that that guy can write on the back of a matchbook, I'll read it. <laughs> exactly. Care. That's the thing. Like as you know, it's com- it's gonna be compelling. Even his yes. books are still very interesting and compelling. You know, I, I, everyone talks. It 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 is way too long, even as a book. You know, like, yeah. opinion. But it was one of those things where Stephen King got to do exactly what he wanted with the book, and he went all the way. And, I literally delves off into a side story that has nothing to do with the rest of it, just to give you this piece of something. Piece of, because that's kind of a cool little, you know, introduction to the universe. You know, like there's things in Cujo that you really didn't need, didn't really move the story, but like, because they were there, you got to know the characters better. Well, I like what he does is how he brings people from his other stories into the newer yeah. stories. Yeah. And with this, Cujo was supposed to be a reincarnation from another story. In the book, yeah. Yeah. So they cut all that out of the movie, though. Yeah. yeah. And I I, see, I like what they did that. I read the book. In the movie, I'm okay with them cutting it out because it was too. If they had all the supernatural elements of like the the monster in the closet and all that, and like the spirit in the closet that was tormenting the kid, if they worked that into the movie, it would have been too much. Yeah. Right after Poltergeist, you know, there's already all that in the house. Like just the dog being bit and having rabies is, is fucking terrifying enough. Yeah. And you know, you don't need there to be some monster that created it all. The reality is a, a, a pet with rabies, a, a lovable pet that gets sick and turns on you is terrifying. It doesn't need to be anything else than that. You know, oh, yeah. like the book better. I, I haven't read the book since I was maybe 12. I'm not going to lie. But like, if I remember correctly, sometimes in the book, it's told from the dog's point of view. Yeah. You're wrong. No, I think, I think you are correct. I have on YouTube. Tell me if I'm wrong. But, and in his point of view, or maybe just how I remember it, but in his point of view, I remember the dog thinking, why am I doing this? I don't want to do this, but I have to do this because it's who I am now. You know, like the disease, he can still kind of have that conscious thought of, the, I care about people, but I'm going to eat these motherfuckers, you know, like, you know, so it's like there's that struggle for the dog as he's getting sicker too. And I was saying earlier, like, like before we started recording, like Cujo's not my favorite movie. I don't dislike it. I, I like it. I've watched it a couple times. It's not the most movie and for me part of it is i'm such an animal lover that making the animal the villain is always like hard for me to watch you know the birds it's their birds you know jaws it's a shark you know and jaws sharks don't swim backwards okay jaws goes backwards it doesn't happen they can't they physically can't do it so you know it's fantasy you know yeah. the birds same thing you know it's fantasy you know like things like that but when, when it's a dog a pet especially a saint bernard which is like one of the most common loving dogs in the world to, to turn evil it's hard to watch for me <laughs> See, that's that's it's funny. That's, that's the exact reason why I liked it. It worked yeah. for me because it's something that could happen, and it's so believable. Yeah. And you know what? I'm so glad this it didn't happen. But originally they wanted to use a Doberman in the movie. Yeah, the director wanted to train. The, the, yeah, the the dog trainer wanted to use a Doberman because they're easier to train. Yeah. And they said no. And what they did was I've heard different stories from different people. The last total I heard was they used 13 dogs and a person and a man in a dog suit. I heard, I heard a I heard nine or eleven. Yeah, see a dog suit plus like a, a puppety type thing. So that's maybe where thirteen comes from. Yeah, maybe because one of them. Ask D. 
Yeah, definitely. We're going to be asking her. I've heard like three different things, 9, 11, and 13. And th but the 13 I heard included the guy in the dog suit and like an animatronic or a puppet head. Yeah. Well, one, there's a yeah, there's a puppet head. The person in the, in the suit, one scene that I'm positive about is where you see the um, Cujo ram into the car trying to. Yeah, that's got to be either, either yeah. a, a prop or a, a guy in a suit. What are the no, it's a guy in a suit. Here's what happened was it, when they filmed the scene originally, they had, they ripped out the doors. So Cujo's running at the, ran right through the car to the other side to the trainer. When they filmed it, <laughs> they had the guy in the suit ram his head into ram the- Ram his head into it. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. That's how that was done. And the yeah, point- But like was, I said, I don't dislike the movie because of how yeah. that it could be a real thing. It's yeah. my favorite concept for horror movies. Also for me, like for me, when I watch horror movies, I'm more of a, the, the, the fantastical end of it. That's why I like vampires. That's why I like werewolves. That's why I like monster movies. You know, real horror sometimes is- Live in real life. I want to get away from that. Like, Cujo was not real life. I could have, I could have, I could have escaped that movie in ten minutes if I was in her situation. You know, you're in the car, you're locked in the car. The dog is coming. Okay, you want to get out of the dark car? Open both sides of the doors up, and when the dog gets in, go out one, shut it, run around the other side, and shut it. Dog's now in the car. You, know? <laughs> you, you have a yeah. point there. But it took me until about a week ago to figure that out. We started talking about doing this episode. Because <laughs> in the moment, you don't know what you're going to do. But that, I thought, I'm like, why didn't she just, I know the kid was sick, but why didn't she put him on the roof, get out, let the dog come running towards the car, shut the door, go to the other side and shut that door too, whichever side the dog came in on. And, I mean, it's the same for now. They don't move that fast. <laughs> you know what? I can say for me, and millions of other people, I'm so glad that you did not direct that movie. <laughs> because I, I like that. You know, had I directed that movie, I would have worked that into and made it fail. It would have had to fail. She would have had the idea, she would have tried it, and that would have been like her last effort. And that's when the breakdown would have happened. You know, like the whole crying, and like that would have been the end, like, or, you know, before the end. You know, that would have been that moment of, uh, it's never, we're never going to escape. Yeah. <laughs> Doing my research, I realized there's there's a lot of connections between the Howling and Cujo. Another one connection is that Louis T. He's a director. He directed the movie Alligator. Yep. Stephen King saw that movie and said, "I like this." Yeah. So Steve, I don't think Stephen King was really involved with his pictures as much as he was back then. This is no. He, yeah, he got more involved over the years for sure. But that was one of the earlier ones, and he wasn't really involved. Yeah. But they uh, so he they they liked Louis Teague from the movie Alligator, which I love that movie, and I <laughs> Alligator is so uh, fun. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, another another movie where it's just great characters. And what happened was they saw the first showing or first after the movie was done, and the studio said, love the second half, hate the first half, it's too boring. Let's cut down the first half and just keep the second. They showed Get it to right the to audience. the action. Yeah, and they they showed it to the audience, and people were like, we care less what happens to, to Dee and uh, Danny, the son. Yeah, like, we don't even. But once they put the first part in, you get to really care about these characters, find out where they're coming from, and so they put the first couple scenes back in the movie. Back in, yeah. But the studio is. We, we talked about this before. Like I've had people say, "Oh, I, I, I always fast forward the, through the boring parts in the shining." It's like, what are you talking about? There are no boring parts. <laughs> people are just. Nobody likes the slow build. I love character development, and I know you do as well. Yeah. And that, that makes a movie. I, I want to care about these characters. I want to know who they are and what they're, why they're doing what they're doing. And I don't want to just go right to nonstop action. I, I mean, that's a superhero movie. And that's yeah, I exactly. Want. I mean, you could open it up with action, but then go give me a story and then go back to more action. I'm okay with that. 
but yeah, it's a good thing. I mean, like, like I can understand why the studio would look at the Cujo first quarter of the movie and be like, wow, who cares about having affairs and all that? It doesn't, but then you realize that it doesn't really help you because you don't really care about them. Like, that's what I was saying. You know, like, it, it, you have to get, care about a character in order to, to want them to survive the film or to be upset when they die. Well, that's why I like the fact that she did, was having an affair with his friend because that's when he leaves, but he still cares about her. So he goes back to see what's wrong because she won't answer the phone. Right. And so, I mean, instead of like, there was nothing, no, if there was no conflict at all, it would just be, okay. Yeah, if it you was know. just them going there and the dog happened to have rabies and, it, yeah, it, you know, that's what she gets for driving a Pinto. <laughs> <laughs> she should have a Hyundai Elantra like me. Right, right. Isn't it a Pinto? It's a Pinto in the book. Yeah. It's in the movie. Is it a Pinto? Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's a Pinto. A Pinto. Yeah. Somebody brought up a great point, though. I was uh, watching something. It said Cujo was done in by two bats. One was a real bat, and the other one was a baseball bat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet you that was on purpose. Now that you think about it. I, I know. Stephen King and his sense of humor. That was probably – never put that together. It was probably on purpose, yeah. All right, I'm looking at uh, Wikipedia, which we know is always correct. Oh, yes. Uh, it says here that Cujo was played by four St. Bernards. Okay. Several mechanical dogs. It doesn't say how many. A black lab Great Dane mix in a St. Bernard costume. And a stuntman. So four several mechanical, we'll say two or three. I'm going to still say 11 sounds right to me. 11 or 12. Yeah. Well, I, saw two, I saw two interviews with D, and she said 13. But then and yeah. I was watching the, the – the, these are more recent interviews. In older interviews, they're, they asked – like four different people, including Danny, the, the, the boy, and everybody had different answers. So nobody really knows for sure. No one really knows. Between 11 and 13 sounds right. I mean, your Wikipedia is saying 11 or close to that, and she's saying yeah. 13. So Because other people were saying, oh, I think there was five. And even the director said, I think it was five or six. Or so but I'm, with the, more of the information as it comes out, it seems like it's between 11 and 13. And you know what's funny? They said that the hardest part was because how they got the dog, how they enticed the dog to come into the car, it looked like it was attacking. They had a, a toy, and then the trainer would be going like this with it, and the dog would have to go after the toy. And oh, they said man. They had, tie, they had to tie, tie the, tail, the down. tail down because the dog was so happy and wagging. Yeah. It didn't look menacing at all. They said, if you yeah, see They the had to do that through the whole movie, though, because St. Yeah. Bernard's just, they just want to play, you know? So the whole time they were had like, people like holding the tails down and tying them down. Because otherwise, I mean, like, honestly, as a, as a movie watcher, I probably wouldn't catch the tails going. Oh, yeah. You know, I love dogs and everything, but I'm not, I don't own one, but I love dogs and all that. And I, But I would just think it's an angry, evil dog. Its tails go because it wants to eat you. You know, like, it's like to eat you. Yeah. But I guess they wanted to go with the complete, like, this dog is shut down. You know, it's just a machine for killing now. So I get where they went with that. Especially, say, it's, like, maybe, like, late or, like, mid late night or early morning the sun's just coming up and you just see the dog sitting there just like almost like waiting for them like it's yeah it's just like yeah. plants like mm. yeah. you know like because if that's what it's doing it's just that's it's that's it's lunch at this point you know <laughs> and it's a, another thing i was thinking about is we mentioned this in a previous episode where sunset boulevard and uh whatever happened to baby jane there's not a lot of blood in that movie in this no. movie the same thing there's not really a lot of blood because it's, it's not necessary you know? yeah, yeah exactly it's, it's, same thing with Howling. Yeah. There's not a lot of blood in that either. That's another reason why I think if, if they took the nudity out, it might have got a PG. 
Not a lot of blood. There's a little gore, but not a lot of blood in either movie. The dog bleeds more than anybody else in Cujo, you know? Yeah. 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 This this is what I was talking about before. It was the fourth highest grossing horror film of 1983 behind Jaws 3D. Which was number one. Psycho 2 and Twilight Zone the movie. Yeah. I can understand Psycho 2 doing really well that year because it had been 26. Yeah. It was something like that, and it was this, you know the first sequel to the site. After a while, it got so boring. But yeah, the yeah. first sequel was um, like twenty something years later. Yeah, Jaws three. I don't know what people were thinking. I I know what it was. I, I mean, I have a feeling I know what it was. Like just from my own, you know, as a film guy and like you know, you know everything. I think the reason why it did so well is one, it was Jaws. Jaws yeah. two was actually a really worthy sequel. Wasn't as good as. But it's still a really good movie. You're, so you're coming off a couple years off of that. And, you know, it was, you know, SeaWorld was a big deal in the early 80s. Yeah. And then 3D had just come back. So you put those four things together and people were like, oh my God, it's Jaws, it's summer, it's scary. It's, we're going to rush to see this. Because like, because it made a lot of money, doesn't mean it stood the test of time. And that's why Cujo is still well known. Jaws is kind of a joke. But Twilight Zone is... You know, it's it's remembered but not very fondly. Yeah, Cujo is still considered like a, 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 a '80s horror classic. And then you go to Psycho Two, same thing. It did well, partially what it was. It was the first time a movie of that era had gotten a sequel in the modern at that time of modern era. And yeah, it's Anthony Perkins back as him. And go to out of those four movies, I, if I had to pick one, going for Cujo first, then Twilight Zone. Yeah, definitely. I'll um, never so watch Jaws 3 again if I can avoid it. You know? <laughs> what, what really, what really I f- didn't find this out until later. I didn't realize it. One of my favorite writers is Richard Matheson, who wrote yeah. most of the best Twilight Zones. He wrote so many other great movies, too. Like the, the one was the, the, I can't remember what, the, Will Smith did a version of it. But I Am Legend. Yeah, I Am Legend, yeah. But I, I like the Vincent Price version better, which is uh, The Last Man on Earth. That was more. But the book is um, the book out, is yeah. great. Yeah, the book is this. Yeah, his. So he wrote things like that. He wrote um, "What Dreams May Come" with Robin Williams. Yeah, that was such a the book again was better. So when I saw John, his name attached to that, I said, "Oh, what was he thinking? <laughs> was he in Michael Caine mode?" <laughs> yes, there was money involved. There was money involved. Absolutely. I think I did that to people. <laughs> yeah, it invented getting, blockbuster. You were guaranteed a good paycheck by working on it. After that, you know. Right. That's um, so. Let's, let's speak of sequels. Speaking of sequels, Cujo Two. They made one. It doesn't exist for a reason because you don't need a. Oh, sequel. okay. Well, make it fun of. Not everything needs a sequel. You didn't need a sequel to Cujo. You know, going back. You know, you don't need a sequel to Jaws. You know, but we got it. Cujo was this. Like I said, it's not my favorite movie of all time. I like it. I respect it. I do enjoy it. You know, but it's. Uh, it, I don't dislike it in any way. You know, like it's not. I've had the two movies again. I pick Howling over it, but the uh, it's just um, you don't need a sequel. You don't need Cujo's Revenge. <laughs> you know, like and, and, Cujo, and when you think about it, an '83 that came out, right? Yes, we are on the edge of every movie getting sequels. That's about '84. The sequel light really began. '84, '85, '86. You started seeing sequels to everything. You start yes, well. You know, Star Wars really, you know, Star Wars and Rocky did sequels so well. Mm-hmm. That made money was getting a sequel by 1995. You know, and yeah. Cujo was right on the beginning. Like, a little bit more money, we would have had Cujo's Revenge. It would be like Cujo's Puppy. 
Yeah, son of you know, Cujo. Yeah, it would have you know been born with with like a psychic connection to its parent, and now it's seeking out the woman that did it in, and you know, and you'd have some other actress playing her, and it would be on video. I just it really a movie. I just wrote a sequel, a bad sequel. Let's make it. Let's get it. Can I play the boy all grown up? Exactly. You'll play Tad. <laughs> or we'll get Danny back. I'm sure he'd love to do that. No, I, <laughs> What's he doing? What's he doing now? I'll, I'll make I'll make some calls. I'll I'll make it happen. <laughs> what is he doing now? What is he? He was on Who's the Boss, right? Yes. Okay. I don't know. I haven't seen him in yeah. if I if I have seen him, I didn't realize it. Wikipedia. Yes. Let's see. But while you're talking about that or looking that yep. up, I'm gonna tell you what. Stephen King said that his favorite um, performance in all his movies at the time was D. Wallace. Oh, I bet she killed it. I mean, I mean, everyone in that movie was great because it was played so straight too. It was just yep. killed it. Yeah, yeah. And he said that, or no, she was saying, you know, there's the scene where they're in the car. So it got so real. Where in I want my daddy over there. I'll get your daddy. Yeah. That afterwards, the director said, you know what? People are not going to like you. You might have to take that scene out. She was down a little. Trust me. Keep that in. She goes, if anybody who has a kid is going to realize you're in there, you fight for his, for his life, and you're going you're gonna to get frustrated, and there's going to be a lot of tension. And so the director took her word for it and kept that scene in there. But he was worried that she was going to come across as unlikable because wow. that, that just came out. That She was acting, but that line just came out of her mouth. I'll get your daddy. And the that's, one thing that's I cool though, because like, you know, it felt real then. That's what was cool about it. Yeah, and no, it, that movie is very, very, uh, very you know, real feeling. Yeah. It's like this, none of it feels like a special effects movie. None of it feels. That's what I was saying. Like that, that type of horror movie, it's played like in reality, and that's a different level of scary. So and the funny thing is, while you're talking about before that, before you do that, Danny, <laughs> which you're going to tell me where he is now, he at the time was six years old, could not read. So what his mother would do oh, was geez. recite the lines to him, and he would memorize the lines that his mother was reading. What do you mean he couldn't read at six? No, I'm just kidding. That's, no, that's what it says. <laughs> no, I mean, who could? I don't know oh. I could. I'm just a smart ass. <laughs> I, What's I wrong with him? Doing, how dare thought, a six-year-old not know how to read yet? <laughs> I thought I was the only one that could read at six. <laughs> I was lucky. I was, I was reading in kindergarten, but that's um, – but I still can't do math. <laughs> no, that, all right, you and I have that in common, too, then. So – as of as of nine, 2019, he works as a vet tech. All right. Been there since 2016 with his husband. Uh, he doesn't act very often. He pops up here and there. Uh, he hasn't done a movie since 2006, and he hasn't done anything on TV or anything since 2010. He was oh. a life of American teenager. He guest starred in an episode, but he doesn't really act anymore. In this movie, he was the scene where he was having. He just looks teacher. like he's dying the whole time. You know, like. Well, well, it's, there is a reason for that because they made it seem like it was so warm and they're dying. It was dying winter, it. wasn't it? Freezing, yes, it was winter. Yeah. And D made them put a heater in the car. And oh, what happened was good. the heater was too loud, so they would warm the car up, turn it off, turn it so off. He, and there's a scene in there where he has a seizure, and she said, D was walking through it. And he goes, I, I had one of these before. Don't worry about me. And she said it was like working with a little adult. He was nice. so professional. And that scene looks like she was really freaking out. I mean, it was so real. He did so good at it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, the director of photography was Jan Debon. I wanted to bring that up. Yes. Who went on to direct a ton of movies later on. Like he was a really, really good. Well, I don't know. So is he still working or not? I don't know. But a really good, really good cinematographer, which. 
You know, then he went on to, you know, Twister, Speed, you know, did some really good directing jobs too. You know, uh, Twister was a little too CG for me, but I get why it was intense. Yeah. You know, um, he hasn't done much since it looks like. He was really good. He hasn't directed since 2003, since the first, um, since the second, uh, first or second, I think the second uh, Tomb Raider movie. Okay. Which, really, that, I, that would probably kill anybody's career. <laughs> <laughs> but he was really good with this movie because they were it was so hard for them to film in the car because it was yeah. so small. So he found a way to, and the lighting really wasn't that good. So he found a way to, like, I think they had another car. They ripped off the top and they were able to film it that way. And there's another scene sense. they were talking about was the bed where, the, where he was afraid of the, the monster under the bed. So he the monster under the bed. But the way they showed it, where he flipped, he run, jumps up and then comes down. And they, yeah. Something they, the way he rigged the camera, the director said, "I want to do this," and he give me five minutes. And he said he was so happy working with him. He goes, "Yeah, he's just, anything I asked this guy to do, he got it done. He made it look great." He goes, "I had no worries having him as as DP." Yeah, he's, he had a great eye, a great eye for how to, how to do that. You know, so that's good. You know. But it's just cool to see like a different name of a guy coming out of that and then becoming a, a full-blown director is really cool because you, know, you, you do these lower budget horror movies, you never know if you're going to go anywhere. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. Because this was, I'm trying to think of, it was one of Stephen King's first. It was The Shining, Cujo, Carrie. Carrie was early on too. Um, so there really wasn't, I mean, there, there might have been Salem's Lot too. I'm remember, trying to remember when that came up. But either way, Salem's Lot was that, before that, and um, Cat's Eye was the next movie that I think that was made after Cujo. And if you watch, uh, Christine was before Cujo, I think as well. Okay. If you watch Cat's Eye. The opening scene is the. I'm sure you wanted to bring this up. Opening the cat being chased by a Saint Bernard. Yep. And they almost get hit by a car. And what car is it? Christine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, a fun I, little, like, that's so Stephen King, you know? No, I was going to bring that up, but yeah, I, I, that's why I said I love how he sort of, I mean, I know the, the directors did that with those movies, but in his books, he's the same way. He'll have characters from other books, like Randall Flagg from The Stand is in so many other novels of his. Oh, yeah. And now he's, um, his son, Joe Hill, is a great author as well. Yep. And they are combining characters, like char- characters from Joe Hill's story, Will be in his in Stephen King books now, yeah. yeah. So it's going; they go back and forth. But I know you didn't like it as much as I did. I did love the movie. I and don't I, dislike it though. Like I yeah. do like it. I don't. Yeah. It's just it's not a rewatchable movie as much as Howling and some of the movies we've covered. Oh, yeah, I mean the DVD. I didn't realize that until we were getting ready to do this one. I um, I decided my cousin-in-law gave me a box of DVDs. Mm-hmm. I was cousin's husband, like he he was getting rid of, and I went. Like half of them, and Cujo is one of them. Like I, I think it's still shrink wrap too. <laughs> so I'll have to dust it off and finally rewatch it. I will, and then I'll watch Cujo too. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, that's after we make Cujo. That's too. after we write it and pitch it. Cujo yes. Revenge. <laughs> I still think uh, Son of Cujo. I like that. <laughs> son of Cujo. That's the one. Yes, Son of Cujo. Uh, it's Danny and his kid, or Tad and his kid. Yeah. yeah. Cujo and Cujo's the reincarnated Cujo ghost. A Scooby Doo movie, forget it. Let's make it. There's D, D can make a cameo. There we go. D play, yeah. D plays, you know, plays Taz Mom again. Nope, so we'll about it next week. No, we won't. <laughs> we'll bring that up later. Um, I don't want to embarrass ourselves, but 
Yeah, so I mean, I like it though. I just don't love it. You know, yeah. all the Stephen King movies, like, I mean, you know, you look at, I'm looking at his uh, filmography right now, the theatrical releases. Yeah, what's your favorite adaptation? Well, follow, well Creepshow came before Cujo. Okay. Just by a few months, it looks like. A Dead Zone was right after Cujo, followed by Christine. That's why I was in the uh, 85, actually. There were like four or five movies in between them, but same director as Cujo, Louis Teague, and both of those. I didn't know. Okay. That. that makes sense then, too, which is cool. Um, that mid-80s, man. Stephen King in the mid-80s. His movies for me there, some of them were really horribly cheesy, but Bro, Silver Bullet, Maximum Overdrive, Stand By Me. I love those. All three of those movies are amazing. Pet Cemetery in 89. Um, Misery. You know, 90, I like Salem's Lot, too. That... Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot was a made-for-TV movie, though. Yes, with David Soule, who played yeah, Starsky and Starsky Nutch. Yep. But I like, I, that, that vampire freaked me out. What, what year was that made? Um, finding the TV movies now. Hold on. I'm just curious. It was 79. Yeah. Okay, so I was 11. It was that whole, like, um, the Nosferatu look. And it was yes. so creepy. Yeah. Like, when he's, when he's, he's tapping at the window. Was, little... You go ahead. Sorry. I said when he was tapping at the window. I yeah. haven't seen that. And that freaked me out. Yeah. I didn't, I, I, you know what's funny? Is you th- when people think about Stephen King, they're talking about Cujo. They think of things like Cujo. They think of things like it. They think of... You know, the, the average person. Then you have the horror fans. Like he's more than horror because that's what we are. He, he, he did stand by me. He did. He did Dolores Claiborne. He did Shawshank Redemption. Redemption, which is the same book as Stand by Me. He did. You know. He. he you know. And he did The Running Man. The Green Mile. The Green Mile. You know. When you look at all these things, though, they're they're like the Green Mile is definitely still a horror tale because a good person goes to the chair. Yeah. You know. Um, you know, Stand By Me is a horror story if you're an 11-year-old kid and your parents are ignoring you, you know, and they don't even care if you're gone for three days looking for a dead body. That's a horrible thing for a kid to live through, you know, to, be, to be neglected like that. So it's a different type of horror, you know? Yeah. Stand By Me is the coming of age about these four boys who do this thing and stand up for themselves because they are all in a bad place and they want to get be better and become men, you know? But at the same time, it's like all these four kids have a shitty cross to bear in their life, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, he's... He is probably one of the best writers with character development. If you look at the beginning yeah. of his books, he will have 12 or 13 protagonists, 25 antagonists, yep. and you know and care about each and every one. His books, and I mean, he's one of the few authors, there's two, other, two or three other ones, but where his, when his book is done, I'm mad. Yeah. I said, really, I, I still want to read more. I want to read more. Um, Stephen King has so much fun writing these books. And that's probably what makes him so good. Is yeah. that he said after he's done with the book, that's when he's most depressed. He goes, oh, I still like, I love these characters. I want to stop now. And he's mad yeah, when the novel, he goes, the part, getting it out and selling it, I really could care less. He goes, the writing is what I love. And you can tell because his books are so good. I've never, I don't think I've ever he's been always doing it. You know, you look yeah. at Stephen King's career, there's never a big like break in between books you know it's not- and after he almost died from a car yeah he-, he wrote because he, yeah. what's he gonna do though too i mean he, he wrote but well, he-, no. he said he was gonna retire because he could never write i think he's written his best books after that some of his best books well i think he was retired because he was depressed about the injuries you know i'm not gonna write anymore i'm depressed and then you start when i mean if you're depressed you start if you if you come out of that funk usually what brings you out of that funk are the things you love and yeah. writing was something you love so i'm sure that helped him um, and yeah, he's written some of the best stuff since. Absolutely, and he's 
he's definitely more of a free spirit too. I think since then about oh, yeah. his work is portrayed in media. He's definitely more laid back about people like doing what they want with the movies. Like, oh, I think he doesn't get as precious as he used to, and I think part of that is because he's just like this is a retirement fund. Oh yeah, well, that's what he said. He said like in the beginning he was really you know that was his baby. He was tied to that project. Yeah, that was his book, and then they changed it now. And exactly what you just said. I've heard him say. So I saw him speak at the Bushnell, and he was talking okay. about that. And he said like you know at the time he was so pissed off. And he goes, no, whatever. He goes, it, it, <laughs> it's funny because you can tell when he really likes the movie because he'll come out and promote like it. He'll really promote I've the never movie, seen, yeah. I've never seen something. They, before the movie, it was shown in theaters. They had a little cameo from Stephen King saying, oh, yeah, you got to check out this movie. You're going to nice. love it. Like, I've never seen him do that for another one of his adaptations. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. I think you're going to like that. What, what I wanted to bring up with um, the Tim Curry it versus the new one, the new one is way better in every sense of the word, but I think people grew up with the other one, the people that, and it's like Clerks. Oh, no, Clerks 2 is not better. Yes, the Clerks 2 is way it's better. It's a better movie, yeah. Yes, exactly, but people, the same thing. Oh, no, the other, I said, Tim Curry is a good actor. He did a good job, but the, it was, to me, it was too long and drawn out. I mean, the movie, just bam, 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 the first part. Second yeah. part gets a little little too much for me. Like, but Well, have you still, read the book? I didn't read that one. Okay. That's like See, one the of the, the book is like from everyone I know who's read the book and has seen both movies, they love the second one as much because the it, it gets you into things that you don't get until the second half of the book as well. You know? Yeah. So it's a, it's a different story essentially, which is cool. But like for me, like, I remember watching the original miniseries when it was on. Or was it just two episodes? I can't remember. Like two no, it was a miniseries. It was more than two. Yeah. Okay. I remember watching it when it first came out in 90 and I was bored. You know? Yeah. I was also 15 years old, you know, like I, I, I look at my age and I had read the book already. So I knew how this ends and that can bore you, you know, <laughs> like some, and the production value was, it was made for TV. They didn't have the high budget of a movie. And at that point, that was like I said, the second TV movie of his work at that point. So everything I'd seen of Stephen King on screen before that was a movie, was big budget besides Salem Lot, which was big budget for its time. Yeah. Was, and then this movie kind of came out, it was shot on videotape. You can tell it wasn't shot on film. But, Excuse me, it just didn't look as good. And I remember liking it, but not loving it and being kind of bored. And then seeing it, like, when it came on video, I remember it was, like, to rent it, you get two tapes. Yeah. Because it was so long. I really liked yeah. it with some buddies, like, in high school, because they hadn't seen it. Oh, we got to see it's creepy. And I don't be a little more creeped out. I think it might have been, the, the, you know, you're in a dark room with some friends. You had a couple beers. You know, supposed yeah. to be 16, you know, or 17 or whatever. And it was a little more creepy. And plus, Tim Burton, Tim Burton, sorry, Tim Curry, did a great job. But I think everyone just was they could do with what they had versus the movie now yeah i'm like sure they had more to work with you know another episode of two great character driven yeah movies. two horror movies again with not a lot of blood more plot which i like i prefer a great actress yes great actress who's going to be a, a future guest of real yeah. talk and we, we have a lot Wallace. to talk about she's yeah had a long career she's yep. done a lot worked with some of the best so there's going to be a lot to talk about, so definitely check that out. Hopefully it'll be airing around the same time this episode's airing. So yeah. once you're watching this, go over and check out D. Walls cool. on Real Talk with Rich and Jen. That's right. So are we wrapping it up right now? Do you think we got everything we got? Do you have any more to say? Because I say a thumbs up for both movies, but a higher thumbs up for, for Howling for me. <laughs> All right. I like both for different reasons, and I, I can't really – I really can't pick one because I love the Howling – for the reasons we talked about Cujo. I just love, I think I like 
for me, what you didn't like about it, I like how realistic, like how it's something that could happen. It's right. something that like, you know what, a dog, you're trapped in a car. I know you, you basically just debunked that theory. Yeah, it wouldn't work though. Time. The reality is it wouldn't work. But the idea of getting out, because the dog was smart enough to know that you were going out one door or the other anyways, you know, like yeah. knew to run and it, it would get you. But either way, I, I liked it for that reason. <laughs> and I like the, because the, I think the, the character interaction between the mother and the daughter was so real. Yeah. And feel her pain of wanting to save him and feeling. Don't want him to die. Yeah. And yeah, and she could do, she really was helpless herself, but she'd do anything to save his life. And it was just great acting. I think that's what made me like it even more. Like, not even really the story oh. aspect, just the characters. Yeah, so, the acting is amazing. The writing was great. Yeah. yeah. So other than that, two thumbs up. Nice. My name is Rich Seary. You can find me on nutmegjunction.com, nutmegchatter.com, and also check out my YouTube channel. You're looking at the screen right now. Subscribe to my channel, Rich Sear. And John. And, I'm, yeah, and I, I'm John Bristol. You can find me at elmwoodproductions.com down here. It's like that. There, right there. Um, uh, all of my stuff is found there. Uh, you can also see a, a movie called Head right here on YouTube. Check that out. Please. Great movie. Thank I you. Love we should do an episode about that one these days. We have to. I want. I want. To, I want. To, I, we'll talk about this. We talked about it before. I love horror movies. I love the horror movies of the '80s, like Evil Dead. As everybody knows, we've been yeah. talking about this all the time. And you're that is a great. Awesome. Um, I'm oh, paying. I'm gonna do like it. a retrospective episode of the movie. And how it yes. Was. And you're gonna. That's gonna oh, be in I mean, theaters. Soon. Yeah, we're doing a screening, uh, and uh, as as long as COVID stops, we'll be doing a, or calms down. We're doing a screening in. Uh, um, October. I'm trying to blank on how to say months in October. So we'll put a link in the description for the screening if you want to come to it. It's going to be here in Connecticut. Uh, um, and I think that's that's it for me. Yeah, just um, everybody stay safe out there and stay healthy. Yep, and we'll see you on YouTube.